Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If you're into the Bible, maybe you can ask others to join you in a group that you would lead. The material makes it very easy for that. More information is available at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the terrific book of Exodus. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. This is our fifth episode on the book of Exodus. Previous episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google. First week, we talked about chapter one, the oppression of Israel in Egypt and the courageous midwives. Chapter two, we had the creation, fall, and redemption, the beginning of the redemption of Moses. Chapter three was the burning bush episode, which includes the beginning of God's commission. And then last week in chapter 4, we got through verse 23, finished the five excuses of Moses, God's patient and varied dealings with him, and then concluded with a discussion of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in chapter 4, verse 21. Today we continue the uh, commission period into the early encounters with Pharaoh, and then next week we get into the plagues. Lord, be with us today as we unpack your scriptures. Thank you for the beautiful word, the exquisite, intricate word of God that you've given us, uh, your love letter for us. Lord, help us understand what you want from us and for us in the days to come. Thank you so much for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4, 5, and 6 today. But before we get into that, I want to go back to a topic I was closing with in the last episode of The Word Diet. Verse 21 of chapter 4, God says, I will harden his heart, speaking of Pharaoh, so that he will not let the people go. And the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart brings up some difficult and challenging questions. And I had addressed this a considerable length last week, made a number of uh, points, quick review of those that Pharaoh had already hardened his heart to the cries of the oppressed uh, in Exodus earlier chapters and before that. We know that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but God was hardening it as well. And so we have uh, an introduction here to the topics of free will and predestination, both of which are taught in the scriptures. One way to reconcile this is to go with the concepts of God's provision and our participation, which is true of our righteous activity, but also true of, in this case, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, right? The Pharaoh is certainly participating in this, whatever God is doing to provide this as well. In fact, the language of Exodus is interesting. The first half of the times that it occurs in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's in the second half that God hardens his heart. And the last point I covered was that the type of hardening is different. The word that's used of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is that he made his heart strong when it's used of Pharaoh, the word is kabed in the Hebrew, which means he made his own heart heavy, which is figurative for being stupid. So there's a sense of strengthening when the word is used of God. There's a, there's a sense of stupidity when the word is used of Pharaoh. So a few more things to say. One is that God hardening 
as punishment for his response to the plagues that we'll see as they're unpacked, the first five plagues, is actually in the best interest of Pharaoh and Egypt. We see this in chapter 7, verse 5, for example, that the point of all this is not to punish or discipline. It's that they may know, they being Pharaoh, Egypt, Israel, Moses, that they may know that he is God. That's the point of the whole thing. And so the hardening apparently serves to reach those goals. We saw a version of this in an argument I made last week as well, that when you look at Romans 9, 16 through 21, or passages like John 9, 1 through 3, it's all about God's glory. We don't understand his methods, uh, but we, we trust that God is perfectly just and is aiming everything for the good of his creation and in every individual that's out there. A second point revisits the idea of making his heart strong. Again, that's the word in the Hebrew used for God. And some commentators note that God strengthens his heart so that he can exhibit the free will that he wants to. I think of this as like holding a gun to someone's head. They still have choice, but not nearly as much choice as without the gun. In a way, God is holding a big gun to Pharaoh's head, and the gun's going to get bigger as the plagues get worse. So how do you still exercise free will in that setting? His heart had to be strengthened by God. Dennis Prager talks about this and saying this allowed Pharaoh to do what in his heart he really wanted to do, refuse to give up the slaves. Or as Jonathan Sachs puts it, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to restore his free will. After the succession of plagues that had devastated the land, Pharaoh was under overwhelming pressure to let the Israelites go. Had he done so, it would not have been out of free choice, but rather under coercion. God therefore toughened, strengthened Pharaoh's heart so that even after the first five plagues, he was genuinely free to say yes or no. And again, this fits the chronology that's laid out in the text. The first half of the times that this word comes up, it's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. It's only in the second half when it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. The last question this begs, I think, is very important, that we see freedom as a matter of degree. It's not a yes or no thing. It can be won or lost, usually in a gradual manner. Jonathan Sachs again says, evil has two faces. The first turned to the outside world is what it does to its victim. The second turned within is what it does to the perpetrator. Evil traps the evildoer in its mesh. Slowly but surely, he or she loses freedom and becomes not evil's master, but its slave. By this way of thinking, as we exert our free will in the direction of evil, we become less free. Sacks again, Pharaoh is every man writ large, the ruler of the ancient world's greatest empire. He ruled everyone except himself. It was not the Hebrews, but he who was the real slave to his obstinate insistence that he, not God, ruled history. Pharaoh was born free, but became his own slave. Moses was born into a nation of slaves, but led them to freedom. I think this point not only helps us with the present passage, but asks a sobering question, or at least one that has sobering implications for people in our day-to-day life. Does this generalize? Are some people beyond redemption? Is there a point of no return? M. Scott Peck, in his provocative book, People of the Lie, talks about lying as the greatest sin, because once you lie to others, you become more and more immune to correction. And ultimately, once you lie to yourself, how do you recover from that? Or consider more obvious applications like the addictive properties of drugs and other things. Are we hardened by these? Do they have control over us? As we give in to them, it becomes more and more difficult to turn back. 
God's grace and redemption is always open to us in theory, but maybe in practice, there, there is a point of no return where practically people are not going to return outside of some miraculous deliverance by God. All right, so let's move on in the text now to another difficult passage, Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. So the previous passage, which we covered last week, was very much about comfort and reassurance, and we've turned a very dramatic corner here to something radically different. If we had grace in the previous passage, we have law at this point. If we had mercy, now we have wrath, and trouble has brewed big time. Verse 24, God's about to kill Moses. Wow, uh, this comes out of nowhere. Now, it's interesting in context that this follows the threat to Pharaoh's firstborn son in verses 22 and 23, and the passage is not entirely clear, but it's evident that God's wrath is because Moses had failed to circumcise his son. Now, that begs the question, why not? One answer is that the importance of circumcision may have faded over the 400 years in Egypt, or maybe it had faded for Moses in particular. He'd been raised in the palace, and maybe he didn't think it was that important. Surely God's anger is connected to the idea that Moses knew better, right? That he should have known better and should have done the circumcision. It's also quite likely that Moses' Midianite wife may have initially opposed it. And this would be Moses compromising with Midianite culture, as we were concerned about with Joseph in Egypt, and the desires of his wife. So it may not have been about circumcision per se. In many cultures, you would circumcise at age 13, as with Ishmael and modern Arabs. And so maybe he was waiting, compromising with the culture. Genesis 17 said that circumcision was to be done in the first week of life, and maybe Moses is just procrastinating. Matthew Henry says this was probably the effect of his being unequally yoked with a Midianite who was too indulgent of her child, while Moses was too indulgent of her. Pink goes further, the inference seems inescapable that Zipporah was the one who had resisted the ordinance of God. Nevertheless, it was Moses, the head of the house, and not Zipporah, whom the Lord sought to kill. This points a most solemn warning to Christian fathers today. In any case, Moses should have known better. I mean, if you're talking about the God of Abraham, then you're still talking about the God of circumcision and the covenant that resulted from that in Genesis 17. Now, why is this such a big deal? And one answer here would be that perhaps it relates to God's earlier and recent anger in chapter 4, verse 14, as Moses was laying out all those excuses to avoid the commissioning in the first place. But I think it's more likely that it just doesn't fit with the prophetic mission. The failure to circumcise was to remove himself and his family from God's blessing and covenant. As Matyer puts it, at the heart of Moses' family, there was an offense against the will and the word of God. Getting more specific, his obedience was required to engage in faithful service, especially as a mouthpiece for the Lord, to both believers and non-believers. If not, this is a violation of what would later become the third commandment, misusing God's name. How can I claim to speak for God and not obey him? It doesn't make any sense. How can Moses tell Pharaoh that he cannot defy God when Moses himself is defying a crucial commandment from God about circumcision? It doesn't make any sense. And so 
if this is the way it goes, if somehow Moses is not corrected, then compromise will be a central temptation for Moses in dealing with Pharaoh's offer. And, and beyond that, it's just simply incoherent for him to call Pharaoh to obedience when he himself is not doing it. Moses to be the deliverer of God's people, who are also to be circumcised, and he's later to be given God's law and covenant. How can he do that if he's not a lawgiver, but a lawbreaker? This just doesn't make any sense. It's incoherent for Moses not to have this taken care of. Now, this isn't to say Moses necessarily had to have had him circumcised at this point, but once you've accepted God's mission, and he's about to meet Aaron and really get this rolling, at least at that point, you've got to naturally pursue obedience. It's one thing for you know, a non-Christian or a non-believer to engage in sin, but once you're a believer, then obedience should follow more or less naturally, or at least more naturally than otherwise, especially some huge sin like this. There are a number of applications here for us. The idea of sins of omission and God's wrath towards sin, we certainly see those here. This is a failure to do something he should, and God is very upset about it. Second, the importance of doing small spiritual things, although I'm not sure how small this one is. It seems small to us, but in uh, Israel-Abrahamic covenant senses of, of things, this is obviously actually a very big deal. And the idea of having no compromise in general, defying a worldly culture. If he's bowing to Midianite pressures about when to do circumcision uh, in opposition to what God's called him to do, that just will not stand. So then we get to 25, where Zipporah circumcises their son. Verse 26, God is appeased. So ironically, Zipporah saves Moses' skin by getting rid of their son's foreskin. Now, we're not exactly sure how this unfolded. The best guess would be Moses was probably too ill to do it. It looks fatal and serious, and at least Zipporah infers a divine cause and steps in to apparently do what she already knew to do. Again, it makes it seem like they'd had some discussions on this. How would she otherwise know that circumcision is at the heart of the problem? It's ironic that if she previously had opposed it, she's now the one performing it. Some of the language here is interesting. The word rendered feet in the NIV in verse 25 may well be a euphemism for genitals. It's used that way in other places. So she may not be touching his feet with the knife. And then verse 26, the bridegroom or husband of blood is unclear, and it could be unflattering and cynical, or Alec Motyer takes a very different angle and says this is actually a very lovely insight into her love for Moses. Either way, however it's meant, it's symbolic of Moses' rebirth and resurrection. Things will be different from this point forward. Three last observations to close this out. We know from chapter 18, verse 5, that Moses sends his family back to Jethro. It could be at this point. This would be pretty freaky. Or maybe it's sometime later when things heat up back in Egypt. But his family does get sent back at some point. Second, we see another woman, the sixth one, actually saving the day. That's been a recurring theme early in Exodus. As Matyer puts it, Zipporah's understanding and resolute action had brought Moses back into the way of obedience. And finally, the bottom line of all this is that disobeying God is much more dangerous than messing with Pharaoh, and you better get your own house in order before you're trying to lead a bunch of Israelites. His disobedience here almost gets him killed and almost keeps him out of Egypt. Later, if you know how the story wraps up, it does keep him out of Canaan, a story we'll cover in Numbers chapter 20. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. 
Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4, 5, and 6 today, and we've reached chapter 4, verses 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Verses 27 and 28, you have the meetup with Aaron at the mountain of God, which again is called Sinai or Horeb, as Aaron joins the team as prophesied back in chapter 4 verse 14. The narrative is doing a couple of interesting things here, I think, to contrast with what we've just seen from Moses. The first is that Aaron seems to have very simple obedience in contrast to Moses. Now, later we'll learn that Aaron's much more of a follower, and so maybe that's part of the story here as well. But at least in contrast, Aaron seems more faithful at this point than Moses. 29 and 30, you've got Aaron convincing the elders as advertised. This had been prophesied in chapter 3, verse 18, and as we noted in Moses' third excuse, he immediately contradicted that in chapter 4, verse 1. Notice also that Aaron is the one performing the three signs here, and the result of all this in verse 31 is they believed and bowed down and worshipped. Again, their belief also seems to come easier, another contrast with Moses. But of course, for Aaron and the elders, you could also argue that they just have less at stake than Moses, who's got to lead this motley crew up against Pharaoh. Or maybe it's just grace. After all the trouble with Moses, uh, Moses gets an easy ride here when the other people jump on board, at least initially, with very quick and easy faith. Pink says here, The Lord inclined the hearts of the people to believe. Thus, he did not put too great a strain on their faith at first. The real trials are kept back until we have become accustomed to the yoke. God only gives us what we can handle. And as we'll see, the elders can't really handle a lot. And so it's made pretty easy at this point. Now here, all of this would be fulfilling promises for and a comfort to Moses. So good news so far. Let's go chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. So this marks the start of the first of three direct confrontations with foreign gods in the Bible. The second is Dagon, and for Samuel, the third is probably the most famous, Baal and First Kings, at least as a small episode. Where are the elders? They were commanded to be there in chapter 3, verse 18. Could be disobedience from Moses that he didn't invite them. Maybe he thought it'd be practically smart to approach Pharaoh with smaller numbers. Maybe the elders are fearful, which would be understandable. This is a difficult task. They've received no direct revelation from God. In any case, the elders are not along for the ride. Verse 1, Moses has a bold request for a festival commanded by God. Verse 1, he also refers to God as the God of Israel, which identifies God specifically and almost exclusively with the Israelites. And the command is, let my people go, God's people, not Pharaoh's. 
One can't imagine that would sit really well with Pharaoh. The use of the term festival is interesting, at least in Moses' mind. He knows that this festival is going to involve sacrifice, chapter 3, verse 18, and serving God, chapter 4, verse 23. But sacrifice and serving would be terms that would be threatening to Pharaoh. Festival is not a direct competition with the God of Israel. Verse 2, Pharaoh responds, and interesting what he adds and removes here. First of all, he removes the phrase, the God of Israel, so he does not accept the political name of God here. He asks, who is the Lord? And then he states, I do not know the Lord. number of interesting angles here. First of all, it reminds us of Moses' first two questions in chapter 3, verses 11 and 13, when he asked, who am I? And he asked, who is the Lord? And so Pharaoh's asked, actually, ironically, a very similar question here. I think it reminds us of Pilate's question, what is truth in John 18, 38? It seems like a deflection. It's rejecting the significant but modest request, but you know, not particularly surprising that a dictator would refuse it. And we might say that this is arrogantly refusing to even acknowledge God or to allow him into his pantheon of gods. In this, I don't think we're seeing a claim for atheism, right? Romans 1.20, we know that nature testifies to the existence of God. And we, Pharaoh probably was a polytheist and saw himself as a god. But as for God of Israel, the particular God of Israel, I think you can understand why he would have questions and conclude that more necessary uh, evidences should be forthcoming. He doesn't want to do this without good reason. Pharaoh had heard of many gods, but not this one especially if Yahweh was a new name or even a watchword, kind of a code name, Pharaoh would not have been aware of it. And here's the biggest point. He hadn't seen of any of this God's power and evidently had a lack of power given the bondage of his people. So he really has been given no reason yet to respect the so-called God of Israel. Why would he respect him? Pharaoh's in charge. The God of Israel's people, supposedly, are in bondage to him. What kind of God is that? Matthew Henry says, Pharaoh made his estimate of their God and concludes that he made no better a figure among the gods than his people did among the nations. This first encounter also gets us into some questions about the dating of Exodus, and depending on which way we go with this, this was either two guys in their 80s having this discussion, or Moses, an 80-year-old with a very young king who is considered a god by the Egyptians. Why doesn't Pharaoh get fired up? By going to Pharaoh with such a request, it would seem that they're risking their lives, particularly in persisting. So again, maybe there were previous connections. Somehow he's easily granted an audience and he's not killed after this request. Verse 3, Moses is persistent and offers a slightly different appeal. This time he does mention sacrifices and a short three-day journey. Later, in chapter 8, verses 26 through 28, the same logic will pop up. Let me go ahead and read that passage for you. Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. So Moses doesn't make that logic explicit here, but maybe it's understood. It's interesting as well that Moses adds a reference that God might strike them with plagues or with the sword. This is not part of what God gave Moses to say. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Maybe Moses is inferring that this will be the penalty for his disobedience, especially given his recent run-in with God just a few verses earlier. 
I think the other interesting thing for the reader is that it ends up being an implicit warning to Pharaoh. It's not a direct threat, but it's certainly ominous and foreshadows the plagues that will plague Egypt in the coming months. Alec Motyer runs quite a bit with the idea of Moses being disobedient here. If you look back to the instructions in chapter 3, verse 18, it's clear that Moses is not doing a great job of following the directions that were given at that point. For one thing, the delegation is not what it's supposed to be. I mentioned this earlier, but it's Moses and Aaron only in chapter 5, verse 1. And in chapter 3, verse 18, he was commanded to take the elders, presumably for added weight or credibility with Pharaoh, or maybe for their empowerment or both, but it doesn't happen here. The wording is off as well. In chapter 5, verse 1, he omitted the limited request, the three-day trip that was specified back in chapter 3, verse 18. And here in verse 3, he's adding something, kind of reminds us of Genesis 3 when Eve adds to God's word and talking with the serpent. Chapter 5, verse 1 is an absolute claim for freedom, and then it's tempered back in verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 18 starts modest and even has the word please, as we talked about. And again, that's missing here as well. So I think that's the right position that Moses really doesn't do this properly. But what we do know from the text is it's not so bad or so far off that God intervenes at this point, even if Moses falls far short of perfection in delivering this opening message. Verses 4 and 5, we get Pharaoh's response. He's concerned about the people becoming distracted, not working, becoming unproductive. It's interesting in light of the earlier stuff in Exodus that this is an economic concern, whereas in chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, the focus seemed to be on politics and immigration. We do have the exaggerated concern about numerous Israelites revisited from chapter 1 as well, and the implication that Moses and Aaron had motivated the people through direct advocacy or merely in talking about it and stirring the people up, exciting the people in a way that would uh, limit their work effort. And this one is reminded of what the rapture sometimes does to Christians, that if you think the end is near, like the books of First and Second Thessalonians, maybe you don't work like you should. And so the passage ends here. I think one last question to ask is why doesn't Moses get to use the staff or use the other signs at this point? And the answer is, as best we can tell, it's not yet in God's timing. That would come later. All right, let's take our second break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4, 5, and 6 today. And we've gotten through chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And Pharaoh has refused Moses and Aaron in their first request to have Israel leave. That takes us to verses 6 through 13. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy, and that is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. So verse 6 starts with the same day. So it makes clear from Pharaoh's perspective that there's a cause and effect here. Moses and Aaron make this request, and immediately Pharaoh's going to make life more difficult for the people. 
Pharaoh conveys this to the superintendents and the overseers in verses 6 through 9, and that's repeated closely in verses 10 through 13 by the Israelite foremen, who are described also in chapter 5, verse 14, who had Egyptian taskmasters. So catch the hierarchy here, right? We've got Israelite foremen over Israelite workers, and over top of them, we've got Egyptian taskmasters. It's the same sort of hierarchy we saw in Nazi Germany and in American slavery. Many times, uh, Jews or blacks would be used as the first layer of management over other Jews and blacks by their oppressors. It brings up a troubling ethical and religious question in this context. Does this indicate their obedience to Pharaoh rather than to God? At one level, someone's got to do it, and it doesn't necessarily involve compromise, but it's also uncomfortably close to the power structures of Pharaoh and the oppression that is opposed to God's people. The message is delivered by the foreman in verses 10 through 13, and it includes a few little nuggets. The first is verse 10. This is what Pharaoh says, which mocks verse 1. This is what the Lord says. And then verse 11 says, go. And again, that mocks the same word in verse 1 when Moses says it. The key to the passage is probably the no more straw business. No more straw would be supplied in verse 7. Perhaps earlier it had been provided by Egyptian farmers. We're not given that detail. As a result, verse 12, they had to gather stubble all over Egypt. But verse 8, they've got the same quota of bricks. And as a result, of course, verse 9, it would make the work harder. Now, in that day, straw would be chopped and mixed with clay to strengthen the bricks. It was also used for the fires that would bake the bricks. So it could mean either or both of those meanings. And in addition to taxing them further, it might help to scatter the people, as we see referenced in verse 12, and make it more difficult for them to organize politically. In all of this, we see that oppression can result from obedience. This is a great example of bad things happening to good people. Nothing has been done wrong by Moses or the people, and yet they get cranked on further by Pharaoh. Last point to make here is in verse 9, that by using the term lies to describe God's work, we saw it in Genesis 3, and we see it in everyday life as people refuse to accept God's word. All right, let's go to verses 14 through 19. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? And the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told, You are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. So verse 14, the Israelite foremen are beaten for failure to produce as before, and they're in a tough spot here. They had to beat fellow Israelites or themselves be beaten by Egyptians. Now, they had signed up for this. They were middlemen who had a cushier life, except when put in difficult positions, as here in this story. Verses 15 and 16, the foremen appeal to Pharaoh. Pretty bold stuff here. Verse 15, they ask why. Verse 16, they blame. They do deflect it to your own people rather than blaming Pharaoh directly, but still, this is a a gutsy move on their part. It is softened by the reference to your servants three times, emphasizing their loyalty to him. All they get from Pharaoh is reiteration in verses 17 and 18, that they're lazy, now get back to work. And this is, of course, ironic given the people's great and greater 
burden. Calling them lazy at all is ridiculous. Calling them lazy after they're having to work harder is ridiculous. And the foreman, verse 19, realized that they're in trouble. Yeah, that's one way to put it. One small detail strikes me. It's interesting that Pharaoh mentions the Lord and the name Yahweh here unsolicited in verse 17. One wonders if he's rubbing it in from an optimistic view. At least God's on his mind. Verses 20 and 21, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. A small thing to start, verse 21 mentions swords. And that was the same thing Moses threw in as an extra back in verse 3. So an interesting parallel there. Verse 20 begins with Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. So apparently they knew of the meeting of the foreman with Pharaoh, probably encouraged them to go, and were awaiting the outcome, perhaps eagerly. Perhaps they thought this was going to be a victory, and instead it goes a very different direction. Instead of good news, they get terrible news and a rebuke from the foreman. May the Lord judge you, and you have made us a stench. The foreman, after trying to exhort the people and reason with Pharaoh, now blame Moses and Aaron. They're caught in the middle. Their position, their problem is really tough and unjust. There's no fun here, but their response is no longer godly. And especially, as I mentioned a moment ago, they probably lobbied to get these positions. These would be relatively lax and profitable uh, positions to hold, but now they're in a difficult position and they lash out and Moses and Aaron. This is a test of faith, but they're not responding well. Apparently, their expectations have been violated here. We're not sure what happened. Moses certainly had been told there would be difficulties. Back in chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 21, we know Moses talked to the leaders. Back in chapter 4, verse 30, and they had believed in verse 31, but maybe Moses held some information back. Matyer believes it's selective listening. Maybe they heard the good news and ignored the bad, but something's happened here, either in theory and practice, or in what was conveyed, somehow they've not gotten nearly what they had hoped for. They thought this would go a lot easier and a lot quicker, and it's not gone that direction for them. These sorts of things happen to us all the time, and it begs the question, you know, are our expectations wrong? And second, independent of that, what do we do when we're disappointed? Lashing out, hating on other people is never an appropriate response. All right, verses 22 and 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So here we have the following lament and complaints from Moses. Starts with two tough questions in verse 22. Why have you brought trouble on this people? Doesn't say your people, which is sort of interesting. And is this why you sent me? And then verse 23, some tough statements. Ever since showing some impatience and exaggeration, and you have not rescued your people at all. Overly dramatic, I'd say here. That's still early, Moses. Calm down. We'll see what happens. His demand for freedom had it merely increased their burden so far, and Moses is not happy at the direction this is going. Now, there is quite a bit of good news here. First of all, Moses continues to be concerned directly with others and only indirectly with himself. And here he's going to God. He's not quitting. He flees to God. He doesn't run away to Midian, for example. And he feels free to bring tough questions and comments to God. This is a wonderful thing. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. Habakkuk, Job, Lamentations, the psalmists. 
Even Israel's name, Genesis 32, 29, talks about wrestling with God and others. And a lot of times we mess this up. We think we need to act polite when we talk with God. Uh, He's a big boy, so to speak, and he can handle our questions. He can handle our rough statements. Uh, So having faith does not mean not asking God tough questions. God doesn't just tolerate this. He wants it. Moses has failed again, so to speak, but he knows enough to return to square one, to bring it to God, and here to get a second chance. Just like the foreman, Moses expected fewer problems and faster results. He expected some trouble, it had been predicted, but he didn't expect this curve in the road, problems of this type. Job 24.1, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Or in the book of Habakkuk, the key questions that open that prophecy, how long and why, those are the key questions. And they're based on unmet expectations of timing or method. God, why aren't you working faster? God, why are you doing things that way? Moses has shifted his perspective. God was here, and he wasn't sure he wanted to be there. Now Moses is saying, I'm here. Where are you? God, when are you going to do something? So why is it occurring this way? And we have some big general answers here. First of all, it allows God greater opportunity to glorify himself. For us and for Moses, the length of the trial would reveal character flaws, develop patience, character, and faith, and trust. It allows greater opportunities to honor God with the decisions we make. Great passages on this include James 1, 2 through 4, and Romans 5, 3 through 5. This would also serve to make Moses more dependent on God and the people more desperate to escape. When you read the commentators on this, they make the point that the Israelites were surely suffering from a slave mentality, and that makes it more difficult for them to leave. And so an increased desperation is probably part of the psychological move that's necessary for people to leave even something as nasty as the oppression of Egypt. What do we do in these circumstances? We remember God's character, his word, his promises. We watch for his plans, his providence, and the big picture. But of course, many times that's easier said than done. Dennis Prager notes that it can be difficult to simultaneously love both humans and God. We can become so upset by the pain they endure that we have trouble loving the God who allows such suffering. We are to love both man and God. It is Pharaoh, not God, who is the one responsible for the Hebrew suffering. All anger should be directed at him. The last thing to note is that Moses' lament follows the rebuke by the foreman in verses 20 and 21. So maybe there's a bit of kick the dog going on here. Matthew Henry says, Those that are called out to public service for God in their generation must expect to be tried, not only by the malicious threats of proud enemies, but by the unjust and unkind censures of unthinking friends who judge only by outward appearance and look but a little way before them. It's tough to lead people sometimes, especially when they're ornery. Let's make life easier on our leaders by following faithfully, trusting, obeying, following what God wants us to do with our own lives as we act in accordance and under elders and leadership of the churches that we belong to. All right, let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Exodus 4, 5, and 6 today, and we've reached chapter 6. Pharaoh has not responded well to Moses and Aaron's first request for Israel to leave. It's resulted in a harder workload. The foremen get upset. They take their complaint to Moses. Moses takes it to God, and we get to God's response in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh 
Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, God's response will go through verse 8, but that's way too much to talk about. So we're going to divide it up here with the first five verses. First thing is verse 1. The words then and now tell us there's an immediate response from God. After the discouragement, the passion of Moses at the end of the last chapter, God responds immediately. And notice also that he provides no direct answer to Moses' question. Instead, he talks about his power and his purposes as an introduction to what starts in verse 2 is his identity, his history, his faithfulness, his promises, and his ability and willingness to deliver despite what are actually temporary difficulty and delays. As to his purpose, Pink says, the Lord pointed Moses forward to the goal. There was much that was to happen in between, but the Lord passes over all that would intervene and speaks to the last act in the great drama, which was just opening. We defeat ourselves by being occupied with the difficulties of the way. And that's been a problem for Moses from the beginning. The buts of chapters three and four reappear with Moses' questions at the end of chapter 5. God's focused on the big picture and the end game, and we get distracted by the difficulties along the way. God's power is evident. My mighty hand, verse 1, is mentioned twice. And because of God, Pharaoh will let them go and actually drive them out. Sachs observes about this combination of power and purpose that what is revolutionary in Judaism is not simply the concept of monotheism. It is that God is involved in his creation. It's still in his timing, using his methods, and for his purposes. And that's where we get frustrated. We believe in a God who is personal and powerful, but yet we still don't know the details. And we frustrate in our lack of faith, waiting for answers that are easier and quicker than God has actually intended. Pink again says, instead of chastising his servant, the Lord encourages him. Instead of setting him aside, he renewed his commission. Instead of slaying him, he revealed himself in all his grace. Verse 2 is, I am the Lord. Again, the word Yahweh here appears four times, including verses 6, 7, and 8. And we also see God describing himself in the first person 18 times in the first eight verses of chapter 6. In verse 3, God says, I appeared to the patriarchs, but I did not make myself known to them. And that's a really strange thing for us to read because God was interacting quite directly with the patriarchs. So what does this mean? One easy answer here is that he didn't tell them his name. That's communicated here. Yahweh appears 165 times in Genesis, but it's mostly in the narrative. The focus of the name of God in Genesis is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of covenant, the God of promise, the God uh, that worked with Abraham through those first generations. We also see God Almighty, which is El Shaddai, reiterating and redefining a God of power and sufficiency for his people's needs and to fulfill his promises. And that's the name of God here in verse 3. Or another possibility, and I think more likely, is that they knew the name. For example, Genesis 13, 4 has the, the name Yahweh, but not all the implications of the name. So, for example, verse 4, God had established his covenant with them, but he hadn't fulfilled it yet. So, it's one thing to have a covenant and a promise. It's the second thing to actually see it fulfilled. 
Similarly, verse 5, you've got the Israelite groaning and enslavement. And what does that mean in light of God's promises? Well, not much experientially until God remembers his covenant, so to speak, and acts upon it. And that's going to occur in the coming months as God delivers Israel from Egypt. Verse 3 also says that God made himself known to them. And this is the more intimate use of the word know. It's used eight times of the plague, six other times in Exodus. And it's actually a word used for sexual intimacy way back in Genesis 4, verse 1, 17 and 25, that to lay with one's wife is the same Hebrew word, yada. So whereas the ancestors knew God, they're going to know him much better through the actions and the plagues, through the deliverance, through the fulfillment of the promise. It's going to become experiential with the plagues and the exodus. Pink says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were acquainted with the Jehovah title, but they have no experiential acquaintance with all that it stood for. God has entered into a covenant with them, but as Hebrews 11.13 tells us, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. But now the time had drawn near when the Lord was about to fulfill his promises. The descendants of the patriarchs would know him in a way their fathers had not. And we see the same thing today different levels of knowledge about God. Some know God as creator, some know him as savior. Fewer know him in terms of his power and promises, and fewer still know Christ as Lord and know the Lord intimately. And that's what's being described here, a different intimacy, a different level of knowledge that the people of Israel are going to have experientially because of the events that are about to unfold. Verses 6 through 8 give us the rest of God's speech to Moses. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So let's start by looking at the structure of this passage. Verse 6 has therefore, so that was a good place to break it, right? Because the therefore is based on what came before it, verses 4 and 5, the covenant, and also the groaning that were mentioned there. So verse 6 indicates a break, and that break is in moving from uh, God's audience here. Verse 1, he was dealing with Pharaoh. Verses 2 through 5, dealing with Moses directly. And now verses 6 through 8, what's going to be said to Israel. Now, of course, Moses is going to be encouraged by all of this, even though only verses 2 through 5 are directly addressed to him and for him. The other big thing in this passage, and it accelerates in verses 6 through 8, is the I wills. There's seven of them in these three verses, and the focus is clearly on God in this passage. It parallels the sevenfold covenant promises to Abraham through Isaac in Genesis 17 in the circumcision chapter. It's interesting that in the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31 verses 33 and 34, there's an eightfold covenant promise from God and a bunch of I wills in that passage. Arthur Pink spends considerable time on these seven I wills and drawing applications to us. The first is getting out from under the yoke of slavery. God will deliver them, but he delivers us as well. Pink says, The first thing of which we are conscious in the application of salvation to our souls is deliverance from the burdens of our lost condition, of conscious guilt, of our unpreparedness to die. 
The second I will is freedom from slavery. Pink observes a complete severance from their previous condition. A slave may be sold to a kind master and his burden removed, but he would remain a slave still. And Israel's burdens might have been removed, and they still remain captives in Egypt. The one who receives Christ as his Savior is delivered from the bondage of sin. In other words, it's not about just the circumstances, right? That you can be in pleasant circumstances and still be a slave. You can be an unbeliever and lead a decent life. But to be freed from sin, to be freed from slavery, is the ultimate thing for Israel and for us. The third I will in verse 6 is I will redeem you. So the, the idea of redemption, if you had to pick one word for God and his activity and character in the Bible. It might be the word redemption, and we see it here. Pink says, to redeem means to purchase and set free. Redemption is by price and power. The price is the shedding of obtaining blood, the power, the putting forth of an almighty hand. And certainly Israel will see that, but we see that in our own lives as well. Redeeming the Old Testament implies next of kin, the kinsman redeemer, which is a picture of intimacy and relationship, but also paying an equivalent price which foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. So for them, it's the Passover lamb and the Red Sea. For us, we have verses like 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The fourth and fifth I wills are in verse 7. They speak to Israel and our relationship to God. In particular, you've got God's adoption and his deliverance of Israel to take you as my people. And then the sixth and seventh I wills are in verse 8, speaking to the promised land for them, for us, heaven later, and for now, sanctification and an earnest of our full inheritance now, as spoken of in verses like Ephesians 1.14. Notice also you've got the out of verse 6 and the in of verse 8. Right, We're delivered from out of bondage into abundant life. The out and the in are a picture of justification and sanctification for Israel and for us. The NIV Study Bible says redemption means not only release from slavery and suffering, but also deliverance to freedom and joy. One last detail here, the first four promises line up with four cups of the Passover Seder wine. Jonathan Sachs observes each of the four cups is a stage in the way to freedom, a way of pausing and giving thanks. The other key feature of verses 6 through 8 is the threefold mention of I am the Lord. In fact, it brackets the entire passage at the beginning of verse 6 and at the end of verse 8 and in the middle of verse 7. And the phrase also appears back in verse 2 in the introduction, bracketing the larger passage. So it's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega of this great passage. Verse 6, it's used to confirm the promise of redemption. He's going to bring you out, free you, redeem you. Verse 6 also mentions with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. The Life Application Bible says big problems put you in a perfect position to watch God give big answers. And the first big problem we have is sin and bondage and slavery. And God delivers Israel from Egyptian slavery and delivers us from our sin. In verse 8, the I am the Lord is to confirm his promise of land and to conclude his message with the bottom line, I am the Lord. Notice also earlier in verse 8, the uplifted hand, God's taking an oath here, is the picture that we're given. So a few more comments looking at all of verses 2 through 8. Moses is to draw comfort from God's name, verses 2 and 3. 
his covenant and promises, verse 4, his compassion, verse 5, his word and sovereignty, verses 6 through 8, the sevenfold I will. Alec Motyer says, who then is Yahweh the Lord? The Lord keeps his word, verse 4, feels our woes, verse 5, sets us free, verse 6, brings us close to him, verses 6 and 7, and he will eventually lead us home, verse 8. Faithfulness, empathy, deliverance, intimacy, and inheritance are all embraced by the gracious inclusion, I am the Lord, in verses 2 and 8. And maybe you've already forgotten, but this answer from God comes in response to the tough questions and statements of Moses back at the end of chapter 5. Moses here is not rebuked for a lack of faith, but encouraged and reassured in difficult circumstances. Moses is not encouraged to get his act together, but to focus on God's reiterated revelation of himself. Finally, a comment on the structure and the intricacy of the passage. One of the things I get from studying the Bible, I don't always share it on the radio show or in teaching, is the exquisite detail and structure of the Bible. But this is a passage where I've worked to convey that, so I want to go ahead and wrap that up here with with a comment from Jonathan Sachs. Exodus 6, 2-8 is breathtaking in its grandeur and literary structure. The structure is worked out in extraordinary detail. The first and second halves of the speech each contain exactly 50 words in the Hebrew text. The first half is about the past, the second about the future. The first half refers to the Israelites in the third person, them, the second in the second person, you. The entire speech turns on the threefold repetition of I am God at the beginning, end, and middle of the speech. A fundamental distinction is being made between the experience the patriarchs of God and the experience the Israelites are about to have. All right, let's read verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. He reports it to the Israelites. You can picture Moses being all fired up when he does it, but they don't listen to him. They don't believe. And to be frank, I mean, what happened the last time I listened to Moses didn't go very well. It's anticlimactic for the reader, but I don't think particularly surprising Was Moses discouraged or not? We would hope not after God's wonderful response in the first eight verses of chapter 6, but we'll learn next week in verse 12 that he was anyway, that he was disappointed. Even more interesting than this is the last half of the verse, that it gives the Israelites an out, that it blames it on their discouragement and cruel bondage. Look at their background. Look at their recent evidence. Expecting much more than this would have been utopian and maybe even irrational. But ironically, what seemed irrational was in fact inevitable. It's just going to take time to show it and for them to believe it. But I think this is so cool that God gives them an out. The text gives them an out from God and Moses and graciously sticks with them. God is patient. God is just. And what an encouragement for us that when we're unable to see and look beyond very tough, long-run circumstances, you know, when people are super exhausted, super busy, very depressed, God gives them a break. God's looking down and understanding their circumstances. How difficult it would have been for them or for anyone to understand freedom when all you've known is slavery, and that's for literal slavery and figurative slavery. How do you get people to see something different when they've never known anything different? Lord, help us to show other people what you delivered us from. Help us to convince them of something they cannot see through your spirit, through your conviction, that great things are available, that redemption is possible if they depend on you as Savior and Lord. Previous podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.